Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now let's go to the hotline and bring in ABC News contributor, senior editor for The Dispatch, and host of the Advisory Opinions podcast, Sarah Isker who was recently featured a profile in The New Yorker. Sarah, how about that? I didn't know The New Yorker made it down to Tampa. <laughs> oh, yeah, let me tell you something. I got eyes and ears everywhere, and I saw that. It's titled <laughs> Sarah Isker's Majority Report, and I highly recommend everyone read it. You are the uh, Supreme Court whisperer. <laughs> um, you know, that's what they said. Uh, it was very – it was weird – it's weird to read a profile as a conservative of yourself in a, you know, sort of not known to be conservative publication because you keep waiting for the turn. It's like, however, she, you know, drowns kittens in her free time. Um, and I kept waiting for that. And like then it just ended. And it was like, oh, oh, was OK, that, that was actually like good. OK. It's funny. Uh, <laughs> your profile in The New Yorker came out like around the same time a profile on this show came out in the Tampa Bay Times. We, we didn't get featured in The New Yorker, but we got featured in the Tampa Bay Times. So and, and that was the same thought. You know, I had the same thought when I read that profile. Like, mm, is there going to be something in here that I'm going to be like, oh, no. But uh, no. Right. right. You keep waiting. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> congratulations on that. All right. We've got a lot of business to cover. I want to start with the Alabama Supreme Court and that ruling tied to IVF treatments that we've been hearing so much about. We really haven't taken a deep dive into this on this show just yet. Uh, I wanted to wait for the right person, and that would be you. So can you explain what that case was all about and where things stand now? Absolutely. So a patient in the hospital broke into a room where embryos were being stored. That patient opened the fridge took out one of the trays of embryos. Of course, it was, uh, uh, you know, cryo-frozen. It had burned her hand. She dropped it, and it killed all of the embryos that were in that tray. The families, the parents who had created those embryos, sued the hospital, um, saying, uh, with this wrongful death statute, it's a wrongful death of a minor child. And it was from the late 1800s. And so the question was, what does minor child mean? The Alabama Supreme Court uh several years ago had held that an unborn child counted as a minor child, meaning if you were pregnant um, and someone sort of intentionally or negligently, um, you know, caused uh, the death of that unborn child that you could sue for the wrongful death. The question here was, what about an embryo that's not been implanted yet? And the Alabama Supreme Court held that, yes, quote, an extra uterine child could also um, you know, be a wrongful death under this wrongful death of a minor child statute in Alabama. The problem with that, as you can see, is that that would mean that any time an embryo was destroyed, as is often the case if there are extra embryos in the IVF process, possibly these hospitals could then be held, uh, sorry, these providers, doctors, hospitals, et cetera, anyone involved in the process potentially could be held liable. And so you had the largest provider of IVF in the state immediately say that they were shutting down all IVF procedures until they could work with their lawyers and get clarification on the ruling. At the same time, the Alabama state legislature 
said, oh, wait, 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 we will clarify this law. We did not mean to shut down IVF in the state. And in fact, we will make an exception for IVF in that statute. And in fact, clarifying all Alabama laws to ensure that IVF can continue in the state. And that's where we are right now. We're waiting for that legislation to pass. It's, um, it was proposed by a chairman of a committee. So we do expect it to move quickly. The Alabama state legislature is only in session for another few weeks. So we should know quite soon. We're joined by ABC News contributor, senior editor for the Dispatch and host of the Advisory Opinions podcast, Sarah Isker. And on your latest Advisory Opinions podcast, you mentioned, you know, one of the upsides of all of this, and this is something we've talked about a lot, you actually have a legislative body forced to do their job. Yes. You know, there's been a lot of understandable freak out. Look, my two boys are both IVF babies for what that's worth. Um, So I'm pretty biased on this whole thing. You know, oh, my gosh, this is the Republicans. They want to shut down IVF. This is the activist judges that they put on the bench. You know, all of that may be true. But the actual way that we want our system to work is that judges or justices make their best reading of a statute. Say, here's what we think the law means and here's what it's going to mean unless and until the legislature says otherwise. So, so often we see these headlines you know, Supreme Court strikes down gun control measure or Supreme Court doesn't let Biden forgive four billion in student loans. In all of those cases, Congress can step in and change the law. The Supreme Court is not the last word on that. And so what we're actually seeing in Alabama, in theory, is the system working how it's supposed to work. The Supreme Court uh, reads the law, says, here's what the law actually says right now. And then there's enormous political pressure on the legislature to then change what the law says. And when they do that, then the Alabama Supreme Court will say, oh, great. Well, then IVF is totally fine in this state. The law has changed just as, um, you know, the politically accountable branches are supposed to behave. If only Congress were paying attention to that and were to take what they're seeing play out in Alabama and apply it in D.C., although I'm not going to hold my breath for that. Uh, All right, let's talk some politics now. We've had a couple of recent primary contests, South Carolina and Michigan, and I want to start on the Republican side of the aisle. What we've seen from Nikki Haley, anything that the Trump campaign should be concerned about based on her performance in those two states? I love the way you phrase that because uh, you can hear different versions from both sides, right? Oh, my gosh. Why are we even talking about this? Donald Trump got 70 percent of the vote. She's only getting 30 percent. This thing's over. What does it matter? And then you hear on the other side, wow, she got 30 percent of the vote. If Donald Trump can't win over those voters, he can't possibly win a general election. This shows how vulnerable he is, how weak he is as a Republican nominee. So which is it? Is he incredibly strong or is he incredibly weak? And I think the answer to that question depends on whether you think Donald Trump is an incumbent. If he's an incumbent running in a Republican primary and someone's getting 30 percent of the vote, that would be really, really bad. Or is this a normal Republican primary like we saw in 2016, where once you're through the first couple races, one person is far ahead. But that doesn't mean that they're weak in the general election. It just means that those voters still aren't satisfied with that choice, but they'll come home after Labor Day. So the real question is, for those 30% or so of Republican primary voters that are voting for Nikki Haley and not Donald Trump, will they still vote for Donald Trump in the general election, or will they stay home, or will they vote for Joe Biden? 
I think the voting for Joe Biden's a non-starter for the vast, vast yeah. majority of those. I believe in the end, this is actually a lot more just like a normal primary and that those voters will quote unquote come home around Labor Day where they'll decide that it's a binary choice and they will not like Donald Trump, but they'll hate Joe Biden more. And we're seeing the exact same thing on the Democratic side. That's what I was going to ask next. Yeah, in Michigan, 100,000 Michigan Democratic primary voters voted uncommitted. That was about 13% of the vote. And everyone's saying how this says Joe Biden's an incredibly weak incumbent. He can't win the general election. It is true. If 100,000 Democratic voters stay home in November, he can't win Michigan. Done deal. But in the end, will they hate Donald Trump more than they dislike their own candidate? And time and time again, this is what we call negative polarization. The team isn't motivated by love of their team. They're motivated by hatred of the other team. ABC News contributor, advisory opinions host, and senior editor at The Dispatch, Sarah Isker with us. You can follow her on X at Wig Newtons. And don't forget to read the glowing profile of Sarah Isker in The New Yorker. It's titled Sarah Isker's Majority Report. Sarah, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming back on. Thanks, Ryan. Now for an update on everything happening around the Tampa Bay area in relation to the business community and commercial real estate. Let's bring in Tampa Bay Business Journal real estate editor Ashley Kreitzer. You can find her work online at TampaBayBusinessJournal.com and you can follow her on social media too at Ashley Kreitzer. And Ashley, let's start with a follow up on a story that we covered last week, the St. Pete Beach City Commission voting to approve the expansion of the Serata Beach Resort. That's right, Ryan. So this was a very contentious vote and a hotly opposed project, but it did ultimately win approval with the city commissioners last night. If your listeners recall, this was actually delayed. It went into, I think the first hearing was last week or the week before, and it was so contentious. Public hearing went on so long, they had to delay until last night. And there was still five hours of deliberation last night, but ultimately it did pass three to two. And what does this mean for that area? What are we looking at in terms of the expansion? So we're, t- we're talking about two new hotels being added to that property. One's a 10-story JW Marriott. One's a nine-story Hampton Inn. It's an additional over 600 rooms. So just think of the jobs that that will mean for that area, but also for tourism on St. Pete Beach. St. Pete Beach is a really cool little spot. It has a very different vibe than Clearwater or some of the more commercial beaches in Florida. And this is going to add a place to stay, hopefully give more people the opportunity to experience St. Pete Beach. And that was the concern among those living in that area that this would almost become like a domino effect where St. Pete Beach would start to grow, maybe not to the extent that we see at Clearwater Beach, but that it would um, become more of a destination, bring more people into that area and in effect uh, cause some more problems for the residents living there. Yeah, that was the concern. I mean, I think we're seeing that all over the Tampa Bay region when any sort of new development is proposed. People yeah. who have been here, whether it's five years or 50 years, they don't want it to see change. Kind of those ladder people. I got in, I'm pulling up the ladder. You can't come in. I think that there is room in St. Pete Beach to thoughtful, St. Pete Beach to thoughtfully develop, right? You don't have to destroy the character of St. Pete Beach, but certainly there's room to improve and add new development that could bring in more people and more money. 
While we're on the topic of tourism, bringing people into the Tampa Bay area, we've got a new nonstop flight to Mexico that was announced by Tampa International Airport. And this just continues a huge expansion we've seen of giving more and more people more options and allowing for more people from different parts of the world to come experience what we have to offer across Tampa Bay. That's right. So this is a new direct flight between Tampa and Mexico City. The airline is Aeromexico. And the airport does a ton of research, a ton of just, you know, market data, figuring out where there is demand for these direct routes. And Mexico City has been in the works for a very long time. I will say these are very small jets that are going to be making the trip from Tampa to Mexico City. They only seat 99 travelers, but they are looking to add larger planes, Boeing 737-800s. And that would be during the holidays when there's more demand. But um, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. I think a lot of flights come in and out of TPA and they tend to go away a little more quietly than they arrive. But this one sounds like one that has been in demand for some time. It does feel like there have been a number of announcements recently, uh, more direct flights, uh, flights to different international destinations coming into Tampa International Airport. I feel like, you know, Every so often, we've had one of these announcements over the course of the past couple of years. Yeah, and that's really a testament to Joe Lapano, the CEO of the airport, yep. and he has announced his retirement. But in the time that he's been there, I mean, that's been the that has been the goal, and he has not been shy about that. It's been very public. We need more direct flights. We need more international flights, and you're seeing the results of that. All right, we're joined by Tampa Bay Business Journal real estate editor Ashley Kreitzer. Again, you can find all of her reporting at tampabaybusinessjournal.com. Let's talk about the redevelopment of St. Pete's former police headquarters. This is set to begin construction soon. What's going to be happening there with this Orange Station project? So this is a really exciting project. It's been in the works for a long time since the Kreisman administration, and it's a really key part of downtown St. Pete. It's in that edge district corridor right near Tropicana Field, where hopefully we're going to see some redevelopment in the not-too-distant future. And this is a mixed-use project. It's going to have hotel rooms. It's going to have um, a little bit of affordable housing, actually. And then it's also going to have the first new multi-tenant office space in downtown St. Petersburg in four decades. And so you take that and you add in what you uh, mentioned, hopefully a redevelopment of the Tropicana Field site. And uh, you're talking about some some major additions to downtown St. Pete in a part of St. Pete that really is the, the one part left that could use this kind of work. Right. I feel like we use this phrasing all the time, especially as it pertains to gas works in Tampa. But that area really is that hole in the donut. Downtown St. Pete and those surrounding urban districts are so vibrant. And this is just adding more of what's needed because, you know, we talk about office space a lot and how there's not really demand for office space. But the vacancy rates are so low in downtown St. Petersburg that it can definitely handle another 125,000 square feet. There's tons of demand from companies that want to be down there, that want their their employees to have that live, work, play lifestyle and be close to all of the amenities downtown St. Pete has, and they have nowhere to go. Let me ask you this. Going back to a story we covered a moment ago, do you think the growth of downtown St. Pete, this redevelopment project, if the Tropicana field site gets redeveloped, do you think all of that growth, does that put more pressure on St. Pete Beach to continue to grow and to create uh, a better connection between the two? 
Well, nothing happens in a vacuum, and that's yeah. a great point. Like, the better connection, clearly we do have the Sunrunner now. There's been some issues there um, with the unhoused population riding the Sunrunner back and forth between downtown and the beaches, and the folks at the beaches were upset. But I think in a roundabout way, yes, anyone that moves to this region puts more demand on the beaches because people don't move here from Wisconsin to hang out on the Hillsborough River. <laughs> they move here for the, for the beach, right? And I say that as a downtown Tampa resident. I think that anyone who's in this area within an hour of the beach mm-hmm. is going to eventually put more demand on the beach. And final story I want to cover, the owners of Tampa's Oxford Exchange, a really popular spot, opening up a new Mexican restaurant. What Can you tell us about that? So this is going to be a really cool spot. If listeners can picture where the current hotel on Rocky Point is, it's been there for a few years. It opened up during the pandemic, and it did have a rooftop bar concept there, but Tampa's Casper family, the owners of Oxford Exchange, purchased the hotel in late 2021, and this is one of their first big changes they're making. It's going to be a Mexican-themed restaurant and bar. It's just incredible. I was up there last week. It's still very much under construction, but the views of Tampa Bay and the the airport it's it's incredible and i'm one of those people who's guilty of saying you know rocky points all the way out there from downtown or south tampa it's really not that far and i think that you're going to see a a surge of interest in rocky point plus there's all those apartments around that Mm -hmm. hotel oh yeah and these rooftops taking advantage of the tampa skyline the water views it seems like businesses they're much more on top of that now because we've got some gorgeous views and for so long uh it just seemed like there weren't those kinds of spots where you could go and enjoy them it's so true and it's kind of like when the river walk opened up yeah. and armature works opened up and we're all going what took us so long i i think the same thing is happening with these rooftops and i gotta tell you having just been to the casa Camille rooftop where it's going to open it the views are spectacular it's a completely different perspective of tampa bay usually you can only get it when your flight's coming back in so i think people are really going to be surprised at just how cool it is Tampa Bay Business Journal real estate editor Ashley Kreitzer. Again, find all of her reporting and a whole lot more at tampabaybusinessjournal.com. And you can follow her on social media at Ashley Kreitzer. That's K-R-I-T-Z-E-R. Ashley, always appreciate the updates. We'll talk to you again next week. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now let me bring in Nathaniel Rakich, Senior Elections Analyst for ABC News and 538 to talk about the presidential election and some new polling on a number of different issues. Nathaniel, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to come on the show. And let's start with what we've seen from some of the recent primaries, South Carolina, Michigan. And I want to begin on the Republican side of the aisle. Any big takeaways from Nikki Haley and Donald Trump's performance in those states? I mean, I think the big takeaway is that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Uh, There just isn't a path for Nikki Haley. Obviously, she lost South Carolina, and that's her home state, uh, which is pretty bad. And then she lost Michigan by an even bigger margin, uh, something on the order of uh, 40 percentage points. Um, So, yeah, I mean, look, no non-incumbent has won the first three primary states uh, in a Republican primary uh, ever, like in, in the modern era, um, until Donald Trump did it. Um, and so, like, yeah, he's he's just the overwhelming front runner. And at this point, it's just kind of about the, the formality of Super Tuesday uh, making that official. If you're the Trump campaign, how concerned are you about the numbers you're seeing for Nikki Haley? She's she's losing by a wide margin in states like South Carolina and Michigan, but she is drawing a certain percentage of the Republican Party and some independents. How concerned are you about that? 
Uh, I'm, I wouldn't be too concerned. Uh, this the kind of happens every four years. You know, the party has a robust uh, primary, uh, but you know, there are several months for the for the party to kind of come together. Um, and you know, time heals all wounds, that sort of thing. Um, a sizable number of Nikki Haley supporters have already said in exit polls that they would be willing to support Donald Trump uh, as, if he were the nominee. Like, it's not necessarily that those are all anti-Trump votes, um, but in fact, a lot of the anti-Trump votes are actually coming from voters who are probably were already supporting Biden um, and like who voted for Biden in 2020, uh, who maybe are registered independents, maybe used to be Republicans, are fans of the way the party used to be, um, and they're kind of voting for Haley as a way to maybe bring the party back to that. But of course, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And then final question for you on the presidential election stuff. Uh, President Biden in Michigan and the uncommitted, the non-committed vote that we saw, um, was that more hype than what the end result ended up being, or is that something that Biden should be concerned about in a state that uh, will likely play a pivotal role in who wins the general election in November? Yeah, I think that was also overhyped, kind of the same situation where, you know, almost all, uh, you know, party voters end up coming, quote unquote, coming home to the nominee at the end of the day, even if they are kind of registering their their discontent in the primary. Uh, historically, in Michigan, Michigan has this uncommitted option. It's had this for a long time. Historically, it gets around 10 percent just because there are usually around 10 percent of disgruntled Democrats. And this year it got 13 percent. So it was a little higher than average, but uh, not significantly. I don't think it's enough to keep Biden up at night. We're joined by Nathaniel Rakich, senior elections analyst for ABC News and 538. Now let's switch to the 538 Polapalooza that you guys put together, where you looked at a whole bunch of different polls on a whole bunch of different issues. What were some things that stood out? Yeah, so uh, I think one of the interesting things is we took a look at polling on U.S.'s role in Ukraine. Obviously, that uh, conflict turned two years old uh, this past weekend. Um, and you'll remember that back in uh, 2022, uh, when the war first broke out, there was a lot of outpouring for Ukraine in terms of Ukrainian flags everywhere and Americans across the political spectrum thought that we should help them in their war against Russia. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. It's now a pretty divisive issue with Republicans tending to think that we shouldn't help Ukraine and Democrats thinking that we should. Uh, So one poll from the Associated Press found that 45 percent of Americans now think the U.S. is spending too much money helping Ukraine. And that's key because you've got ongoing negotiations about how much we should be funding Ukraine moving forward, if we should be funding them at all. Uh, let's talk about Black History Month, uh, the month of February, and how Americans view that. I thought this was particularly interesting. Yeah, agreed. So the pollster Big Village asked Americans how important they thought Black History Month was to promote awareness and understanding of the contributions of black people to society. And only 53 percent of Americans thought that it was actually uh, extremely or very important. Um, And among white Americans, that number was even lower, 48 percent. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, black Americans still think that Black History Month is important to to highlighting their contributions. Eighty two percent of them thought that thought so. And then you have some approval rating numbers and looking at the Supreme Court, they're in the middle of hearing oral arguments on a number of different uh, controversial issues and they'll be issuing rulings in a couple of months. Uh, Where does the Supreme Court stand as we've seen uh, approval of all kinds of different institutions just tank in recent years? 
Yeah, exactly. The Supreme Court hasn't been immune to that. Uh, so according to a new poll from Marquette University, they have a net approval rating of negative 20 percentage points. Wow. Um, that is way, way down from 2020 when they were at positive 33 points. Um, now, I think there are multiple reasons for this, including um, some of the uh, kind of ethics scandals uh, surrounding uh, Clarence Thomas, for instance. But I think the big reason is the 2022 decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. That was just not popular. According to the same poll, uh, two thirds of Americans uh, said that they oppose that ruling and then finally real quick uh you have a poll on tiktok and i thought this was worth mentioning because uh like we see with x or you know as people used to know at twitter you've got uh, a small percentage of users generating a lot of the content yeah, exactly. Uh, so according to the Pew Research Center, 98% of the U.S. content on TikTok comes from just the top 25% of users. Wow. And uh, only half of users actually post any content at all. The other half are what they call lurkers, which is they're just on there to, to watch videos. Well, whether you're posting or lurking, you can uh, check us out on TikTok at Ryan Gorman Show. Uh, mm-hmm. Nathaniel Rakich, Senior Elections Analyst for ABC News and 538. Nathaniel, really appreciate the update. Thanks so much. Yeah, don't just be a lurker. You can comment on our videos and help us get more views on TikTok, even if you're mean to Ryan, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, which apparently is uh, <laughs> the thing to do on uh, TikTok. I it get is. I get trash for uh, everything I say on I that know. platform. I love it, and I know you don't see it, so <laughs> when they're really nasty, though, I'll let you know. <laughs> Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Uh, what about, like, on Instagram, the feedback's generally pretty positive. Yeah, for the most part. Every once in a while, there's some comments about something that we said, but for yeah, the most but part... but TikTok is where they're really coming after me yeah. for my hot takes. Yeah, yeah. I love it. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> and which was the one that recently... It was the Wendy's one, right? The, where we well, talking the, about the Wendy's the, price the, surging? Yeah, the Wendy's one, though, people were kind of on our side okay. of that Wendy's is being ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, it was the one about um, King Charles. You made a con- It was when we were talking about uh, Meghan Markle, like, taking over yes. King Charles and all that. My theory. Oh, I think you must have off some British people because they there were a it. lot of comments. Yeah. And, and they were calling you an idiot for not understanding how the, you know, how the succession works and all that. Yeah, it was great. That's great. The Ryan Gorman Show, 5 to 9, every weekday morning on News Radio WFLA. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.